Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joshua, and today we'll be talking to Professor David Abulafia about his book, The Boundless Sea, A Human History of the Oceans, which was awarded the prestigious Wolfson History Prize in 2020. A very warm welcome, David. Thank you very much. Now, David, you've had quite a storied career, one which has seen you travel far beyond the confines of the University of Cambridge, where you studied, taught, and continue to hold positions in. I wonder if you could start by telling us how you came to become an historian and where the journey has taken you so far. It's a very good question, because I think it's something almost deeply rooted in one's DNA. I um, I remember when I was very small, uh, learning the names of the kings and queens of England from uh, my older brother, he had this school diary, which had a list of all these names. I was only about five. Um, and it was always one of the subjects which very much attracted me, though as a child, I also had a passion for astronomy and natural history and so on. Um, but it was also something which, uh, where I was extremely well taught, and particularly at my second school, and I've actually dedicated the book to some of the people who taught me at that school, um, where I was introduced to medieval history. Now, I already had a very strong interest in archaeology, which I developed through uh, learning Latin and then Greek, and that drew me to all sorts of ancient peoples, such as the Etruscans and the Minoans and so on. And that drew me into the Mediterranean, actually. Um, and so I was fascinated by the Mediterranean world long before I'd ever been there. Um, and it also explains, I think, why in my own writing about the past, I do, although I've not been trained as an archaeologist, I do use a great deal of archaeological material. And in writing this book and the previous book, The Great Sea, which was about the Mediterranean only, uh, a lot of the research. I mean, one couldn't spend days, weeks in the archives for a book of that sort. Um, But visiting museums was tremendously important. And in the back of the Boundless Sea, I've actually provided a list of museums, which some of which um, are very small, but they're museums I visited. Some of them are enormous. A a mixture of museums just showing how visiting maritime museums, historical museums, um, can really open your eyes to uh, the study of the maritime past. So, um, so maritime history, it's something which I found myself doing, particularly when I started on my research career, my PhD, which was about Genoese, Venetian, Pisan merchants in the medieval Mediterranean, and about their trade with the Kingdom of Sicily, the Norman Kingdom of Sicily, about which nowadays quite a lot's been written. But at that point, there were very few people really working on the subject. And I found this treasure trove of documents, mainly in Genoa, which um, the documents themselves, most of them, not all of them, had actually been published, uh, but people hadn't used them. And this is a sort of disease in Italy and Spain and some other Mediterranean countries. They publish enormous numbers of documents. They've got too many documents in a way. And so um, 
you'll get a two-page introduction, and there they are. You know, and other people have to come along and actually turn these to good use. Uh, and these were the actual contracts, Genoese merchants going out to trade in Palermo and other Sicilian cities uh, at a period when the Kingdom of Sicily was coming into existence uh, and when it was really it lay lying right at the centre of the Mediterranean and had connections in every direction towards the Crusader Kingdom in the east, towards the uh, coast of North Africa in the south, westwards towards Spain, southern France and so on. Um, and so there I was sort of engaging in maritime history without yet really having uh, much sense, I suppose, of the wider Mediterranean, despite these connections. But there was another factor at work in my brain. And this was that in my third year at Cambridge as an undergraduate, uh, I was sent to be taught by a historian. He was an expert really on European expansion overseas, Portuguese, particularly in the Indian Ocean, a man called Geoffrey Scammell. And he told me one week that he'd like me to write an essay about the Mediterranean. All right. Um, and he told me to read this book by a man called Fernand Brodel. And I said, could you spell that, please? Um, we, we didn't read Brodel in England in those days. I'm not sure it had actually been translated. I remember I did read the French edition. Um, I think they were at that point translating it into English, so you couldn't actually get hold of it in English. Um, uh, but my French was good. That wasn't a problem. And that introduced me to that whole school of scholarship, the Annals School. Uh, so I'm enormously indebted to this man, Geoffrey Scammell, for having pushed me in that direction. And that also, it came into my approach, but very early on, I began to realize there were things which I wanted to do that they didn't do, concentrating on the individual merchants as, if you like, sort of personalities trying to trace their careers. Um, and uh, also looking at the political context much more closely, understanding the history of these trading connections uh, alongside all sorts of political complications that were going on at the time, which was something they tended very often to ignore. So, um, so I was already, although I thought of myself as a sort of Brodellian, I was actually a Brodellian heretic from very early on. Well, you talk about the influence of Fernand Brodel on your work. And of course, one of your most recent books, I think it was in 2011, was The Great Sea, A Human History of the Mediterranean. Now, this book is much more expansive in scope um, and it's a much more ambitious endeavor. What do you think sets it apart, um, you know, The Boundless Sea from your previous works on maritime history? Well, the fundamental difference, I mean, just looking at this from um, the perspective of the sort of you know, physical setting is that the Mediterranean, although I conclude that book at the Great Sea by saying this is, um, of all the seas, this is the area of the greatest human interaction um, because it's a narrow sea, um, because it's easy to make connections across it, um, and we can trace this history of maritime connections right back across many, many millennia to the third, fourth millennium BC, if we want to. Um, but the Mediterranean only accounts for 
uh, about 0.8 of the maritime surface of the globe. Uh, the oceans taken together about 70% of the maritime the surface of the globe. It's a very different sort of space. So what really interests me here is the Mediterranean. It's a sea which in the winter can be difficult to navigate without um, you know, modern technology. It, um, it was a sea where people did cross the Mediterranean in the Middle Ages uh, in the depths of winter. I, I came across records in Mallorca some years ago showing that there were ships going and coming and going from uh, what we now call Palma, and those say city of Mallorca, even on Christmas Day, you know. Um, but um, but the challenges of oceanic space, the physical challenge, is of a very different order. Uh, and so if you were to map trade routes within the Mediterranean, you would find that I would say, let's say at least three quarters of the surface was covered by a sort of network of trade routes, uh, you'd probably want to exclude the waters off Libya. There's that enormous sort of gulf, um, which is you know, quite treacherous waters, actually, uh, lots of sandbanks and so on. But but most of the Mediterranean is sort of covered by these networks. Compare the oceans. There you're dealing with vast tracts, which only really in very modern times have been used for navigation. You're dealing with very long, very thin and quite fragile connections across long distances. But you've got the same sort of problem, which is, from the human perspective, you've got human beings, let's say, within the Mediterranean, coming from European ports into North African or Levantine ports, encountering whatever period one's dealing with, encountering a different culture, perhaps a different religious environment, different political environment, how people react to that, what sort of goods attract them when they go to these different places. Do they somehow, do they become fascinated by the, these cultures they're visiting and bring back uh, exports? And they, you know, all sorts of areas like issues like that. And if you look at the oceans, you've got this problem writ large. If you're talking about connections, let's say you have, as we do, people coming down from um, Aden in um, in uh, in Yemen, uh, Arab and Jewish merchants in the early Middle Ages, going past India, pushing through the islands, what are now Malaysia and Indonesia, uh, all the way in some cases right up to China. What sort of experience is this? What do they bring back? What do they bring with them? Not just physical objects, but when we try and talk talk about the mental world of these people. There are some very big and important questions. So um, it makes sense to me to set these two projects very much side by side, one of them uh, concerning this area of very intense activity, uh, but a small space, and the other concerning much more sort of spread out activities uh, and a very much larger space and an unknown space as well. I mean, Inevitably, when writing about the history of the oceans, one has to say a certain amount about the exploration of the oceans. I try to move on from that to um, to the contacts which made political, commercial, etc., over longer periods of time. Um, but looking particularly at the period of Columbus, Vasco da Gama, you know that sort of sense that people are heading out into unknown waters. That was something which. Uh, after the Phoenicians, so after about 800 BC, you don't really find within the Mediterranean so much. 
you're certainly right. The the oceans were for a large part of our history very much unknown. But you title your book The Boundless Sea in the singular rather than the plural. I think it is intended to imply a certain unity that no matter how many names we might have for different parts of the ocean, no matter how many parts remain unexplored, it is still one massive and connected body of water. Do you, do you think that's a valid observation? Yeah, that is a very valid observation. And I remember when we'd settled on the title with the publisher, um, Penguin, and my publisher said to me, oh, well, I, you know, I've just been sort of reading your uh, your preface and you talk about how the Greeks talked about the single Okeanos, which surrounded the landmass, which they understood to be three interconnected continents of Europe, Asia, and Africa. You know, we could have called the book The World Ocean or something like that. Um, well, indeed, we could have done. And that is part of the argument of the book. Uh, before before Columbus and before da Gama, before the opening of those routes across the Atlantic and from Europe to India around the bottom of Africa, one has to treat, by and large, the history of the three major oceans separately. But uh, certainly after that, I thought it was very important to show how they were interconnected. I mean, it's it's a very simple point in a way. For Dagama to reach India, he had, first of all, to sail through the Atlantic. For his successors later on to uh, to reach Macau, the Portuguese colony, which was established uh, close to Wangzhou, Canton in South China. They then had to pursue, go even further into the South China Sea, which is effectively part of the Pacific. So there you have three oceans connected to one another. And it seemed to me that in the historiography, that sort of issue tended to be pushed aside. I mean, people have pointed to it occasionally, but essentially what's happened in maritime history is following on from Brodel, there was, of course, a great surge in history writing about the Mediterranean. Then the Atlanticists came out and, you know, David Armitage at Harvard, his his famous comment, we are all Atlanticists now, uh, um, which, well, I'll come back to some of the problems that raises in a second. But Atlantic history actually has produced, according to the latest sort of headcount, even more publications than Mediterranean history. Um, and then, of course, history of the Indian Ocean, that began to develop historians like Kurti Chowdhury at London School of Economics and so on, very important work, and more recently, a French historian, Philippe Beaujard, who's written these absolutely enormous volumes about the history of the Indian Ocean, the Pacific, of course, and we shouldn't forget the Arctic Ocean, uh, which I do deal with as well in my book, uh, the so-called Southern Ocean, Antarctic Ocean, is more a sort of um, cartographer's convenience. I mean, it does; it's not a distinct area, but even that has a book which came out uh, two or three years ago, a good book about the history of the Southern Ocean. But the reality is that if you go back to the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, how did I mean, just from the European perspective, and one thing I try to do in the book is as far as possible to adopt a non-European perspective, but people didn't necessarily think of the Atlantic Ocean as a single space. They tended to think in terms of the North Atlantic, so the area between um, Europe, uh, Northwest Africa, and North America as one space, and then the Southern Atlantic, as we would now call it, South Atlantic 
area between Africa and Brazil as a second space, which was intimately tied to the Indian Ocean, uh, particularly when you start thinking about islands like St. Helena, uh, which uh, Britain eventually acquired control of, but was one of the stopping points for shipping bound to and from the Indian Ocean. And then further up, actually, the Cape Verde Islands um, off West Africa, which were intimately tied to the trade networks of the Indian Ocean, as well as to those of the Atlantic. And the same applies to the Pacific. You have to remember, you know, there's that famous Hollywood film, isn't there? South Sea, something or other. Um, uh, The concept of the South Sea, that term was certainly being used in the 17th century. Um, What about the northern part of the Pacific? And one thing I try to show in the book, actually, when we get into the northern Pacific, we have all sorts of activities going, unexpected activities with the Russians creeping down the coast of not just Alaska, which they did actually acquire for a time, but right down the coast of Canada to Vancouver Island. Um, All sorts of interactions taking place in that space, which from the point of view of the wind systems and currents is in a certain sense a separate physical space to the South Pacific. So how we define these oceans, a bit like the question of how we define continents. You know, why do we say that Greenland is, why do we exclude Greenland from North America? It's actually geologically part of North America. You know, there's a, the, the whole question of cultural construction of continents. There's also a question of cultural construction of oceans, how we name them. Um, but I knew that I couldn't actually continue to handle the oceans separately after 1500, partly for those reasons, but partly also because, you know, if you're trying to write a book on this scale, the accumulation of evidence after 1500, one's always making choices anyway about what one's going to write about. One's always um, deciding, you know, I I say a great deal about... um, China, Japan, Southeast Asia, I don't say so much at various points in the book about India, for instance, or um, Southeast Africa and so on. These are important places, particularly in the Portuguese network, but one has to make these choices. And equally, you know, you have to make a choice about how you're going to bring the material together. And it seemed to me that one of the great sort of unifying themes post-1500 had to be this question of, how those different oceanic spaces interacted with one another, Um, even to the extent, you know, talking about this extraordinary phenomenon from 1565 to 1815, the Spanish galleons that set out from Manila in the Philippines to Mexico across this great arc, this massive voyage across the Pacific Ocean every year, having received goods already, from China, silk and porcelain and so on, to Mexico. And then the goods are transferred very often across Mexico and end up in Spain, Portugal and and Europe. These connections, one had to view issues like the famous Manila Galleon, not just from a Pacific perspective, but from a global perspective, how it all actually connected with cities like Seville and Cadiz uh, in uh, in Europe. You described of course, the sea is boundless in a in a spatial sense, but I think it's also boundless in a temporal sense in some ways because 
the seas have been around for as long as humans have walked the earth. Correct me if I'm wrong. So when and where does your narrative um, in this particular book begin? What are we looking at here in terms of time scale? Well, the time scale, I would hesitate even to give a date now because I was just reading some articles the other day about the Denisovans, this um, this mysterious branch of uh, the human race who are neither uh, Homo sapiens like us nor Neanderthals, though they seem fairly closely related to Neanderthals, and there is their their DNA is present, particularly in the inhabitants of Papua New Guinea, Australian Aborigines, and so on. Um, and one of the questions that then arises is: it, as more and more evidence for their existence is discovered, you move further and further across the Indonesian islands, and you get closer and closer to New Guinea, and so on. You go across the famous uh, Wallace, uh, the, this line drawn by. Uh, Wallace, we, across which, in theory, there was supposed to be no physical contact after a date many um, million, millions of years ago, um, explaining the separate evolution of, uh, for instance, the marsupials in uh, in Australia, um, and that very clear sort of zoological division, if you like, between that part of the world and the rest of the world. But people... Uh, unlike us, uh, were managing to cross this space. And there's also the question that I mention of these very small people found on the island of Flores in Indonesia, who, again, how did they ever get there? It's assumed that there wasn't a land bridge. Um, Have we got that right? Well, probably. So uh, it looks as if very early types of humans were already managing to get across the water. And here I make a very simple point, which is that as humans migrated, I mean, our own direct ancestors as Homo sapiens, just to give an example of them, of all these other groups, as they migrated from wherever these particular populations had developed, um, but in, that, in the case of our type of human out of Africa, they were constantly crossing rivers. They may well, for instance, to uh, get across from Saudi Arabia to uh, the um, rest of the Asian continent. It's quite possible they would cross the Strait of Hormuz by some means or other. People were managing to get across water. Um they had to. As I say, there were rivers, there were lakes, there were all sorts of obstacles. So we probably greatly underestimate the early date of human engagement with, first of all, tracts of water, and secondly, with the sea. Um, and um, that, of course, leads me into the first part of the book, um, which is a relatively short part, but I think a very important part, which is my account of the early Pacific, the Pacific before the arrival of the Europeans. Um, And here we're looking at a really extraordinary phenomenon because we have these hundreds and hundreds of islands spread across an enormous maritime space. Uh, If we include Hawaii and go right down to New Zealand, you get some sense of the vastness of the space, Easter Island in the east. And over a great many millennia, human beings moving very slowly eastwards across this space. There's still a great many mysteries about their ethnic origin and so on. Um, 
And nowadays, people are a bit reluctant. They used to be broken down into different ethnic groups, Polynesians and Melanesians and Micronesians. People tend to be a bit wary of those ethnic categories, which were based on physical distinctions like sort of curly hair and so on, which uh, um, you know, it's not really the best way now that we have DNA evidence, not the best way to measure uh, distinctive populations. Um, so this whole question of that very early movement across the Pacific, what motivated it, um, how it was achieved, um, how it was that Polynesian sailors were often a lot better at their job, really, than European ones, even in the in 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 the age when European ships were regularly crossing the Pacific, you know, in the eighteenth century. Um, and actually, my favourite story in the whole book uh, concerns some of these later latter day Polynesian sailors. Uh, and the story of a schooner captain, I think it's somewhere around 1800, who loses his compass overboard. And he has a Polynesian crew, which by then was quite common. Uh, so there wouldn't have been very many Europeans on board. So he's lost his compass, and no doubt some of his other instruments. And he's trying to get to an island. I'll call it Tahiti, which was actually a generic name for an island. I mean, we think of it as a particular place, but it was a generic name. Let's say he's going to Tahiti. And so he says to the crew, we're lost, you know, here we are out in the great ocean and I can't navigate, I don't have my compass. And they say, don't worry, Captain, we'll get you there. Um, oh, well, so he leaves them to it. Um, and sure enough, they do get to Tahiti. And so he says to them, how did you know it was here? And they say, it's always been here. And it's this sort of knowledge that they had, this extraordinary level of knowledge about which which is actually verified from one two maps. There's this man Tupaya, who's one of the Polynesians who actually drew a map showing what he knew uh, about the location of islands across the um, across the Pacific in the age of Captain Cook, with whom he sailed. Um, but this wasn't just knowledge about where islands were; it was also knowledge about how to handle boats on the sea, how to read the sea, how to read the sky, both when it was clear and when it was cloudy, uh, how to observe, well, Columbus knew how to do this as well, but anyway, how to observe birds um, coming, you know, they, they knew what the limit of, um, of flight of certain birds was, and from that they could judge how far land, you know, suddenly they come into an area where these terns or whatever they are, are feeding and they realise this must be somewhere near the limit of um, of their range from an island. And so, you know, and also understanding how to read things like the reflection of the phosphorescence in the sea in the clouds, phosphorescence around the coral, around the islands, so they... These were things that the Europeans had to learn from them, really. Um, and right up to the early 20th century, right up to 100 years ago, we know that children were still being initiated. And it was something of a sort of religious initiation rite for just a select group who would become the sort of honoured sea captains. Uh, but they were being taught uh, this this very complex art orally, so handed down generation to generation 
insofar as it was written, that consisted of just um, building models out of sticks and stones and, and things like that. Um, and yet it was an exact science. Um, so there's this very impressive navigational lore, if you're L-O-R-E, uh, which uh, they managed to develop. And what we can see, as I say, it's a very slow process. Um, the occupation of Hawaii in what we would call the early Middle Ages, which lies in that North Pacific area, which is beyond the usual currents and wind systems. So exactly how they managed to break through that and reach those islands is something of a mystery. And then in the South, maybe as late as 1300 or even 1350 AD, the occupation of New Zealand, for which we have these amazing uh, oral sources recorded by English, well, Scottish actually, by and Scottish missionaries who recorded the stories they were told about how the Maoris had got to New Zealand and managed to infuse these stories with a certain amount of, of Scottish biblical learning as well. So it's, it's fascinating to see how the um, how they didn't really leave the Maoris alone. You know, they uh, um, they imposed their own ideas on them to some extent. It's genuinely fascinating. I, I'd just like to look back to a point you made earlier about the reliance on oral evidence, because in many parts of the world, we don't have the sort of preponderance of um, written evidence that you would find in the Mediterranean. You had, um, I think you relied on many very interesting sources to write this book, um, especially in far-flung places. Could you tell us a bit about you know, these sources and how you use them creatively? One of the big challenges of this uh, great trend towards global history, the global turn people like to call it. I don't like this word turn because everything's become a turn, you know, but um, is, is, of course, uh, the handling sources. And I mean, just to begin with the documentary sources, literary sources, you know, we have this problem that, uh, to, to, to be able to read these sources effectively uh, involves a knowledge of languages that just about nobody possesses. So um, what do we do, particularly in those areas of the world, which I really do try to bring out in the book as far as it's possible to do so, where we're not reliant on uh, on literary or documentary sources, at least not native ones. I mean, to give an example, we have this so-called maritime empire around the 9th century AD um, in Sumatra and neighbouring areas, Srivijaya, uh, which um, historians have sort of recovered the history of this to some extent from Arabic sources, Chinese sources, and so on. But in order really to understand what's going on on the ground there, what about the sort of native sources? And all one has is a few inscriptions in Sanskrit, uh, which, you know, very interesting and so on, but it doesn't add up to very much. So increasingly for issues of that sort, one has to turn to the archaeological evidence. Um, and it, as it happens in the case of Srivijaya, it's not very good either because the capital, Palembang, uh, which must have been constructed largely out of wood, not much of that survives. And so there's still big questions there. But um, I think one of the things which historians have been far too reluctant to do, they felt that archaeology is such a sort of specialised 
area a discipline unto itself. And archaeologists equally have been very nervous, apart from classical archaeologists within the Mediterranean. The archaeologists have been nervous about using uh, written sources, thinking, well, that's for the historians. We actually have to cross that divide. Um, and uh, people are beginning to do this in significant ways. And actually, I mean, I think um, within if we stay within the Indian Ocean, the South China Sea, the sort of work that's been done by archaeologists in Singapore is very impressive in opening up evidence based on ceramic fragments, mainly found in Fort Canning Hill, the, the, the uh, medieval sort of citadel, if you like, of Singapore, and then to some extent down below as well, and really showing that Singapore was an important commercial centre in the 14th century, which is barely reflected, just a little bit, in the written sources. And they're now beginning to discover, actually, that in the 16th century, too, there was quite a lot of activity going on when the general assumption was that most of the commercial activity, most of the population and so on, had moved a little bit to the north towards Malacca. So um, a lot, a lot can be recovered from that ceramic evidence in this case. And again, staying with that area, with Indonesia, Malaysia, um, the eastern end of the Indian Ocean, the evidence, and also actually the Japan Sea, the South China Sea, the East China Sea, um, the evidence from shipwrecks is accumulating at an astonishing rate. And one of the really exciting things in writing this book was following up some of these reports of um, by and large, they're medieval shipwrecks carrying found in the waters of China and Indonesia, carrying hundreds of thousands of pieces of um, of Chinese porcelain or other types of Chinese pottery. Uh, it's clear that the biggest ships might be carrying a million pieces of porcelain out of China by the end of the Middle Ages. Um, and, um, you know, that's only part of the cargo. They would also have been carrying silk. So historians and archaeologists together, for once we're on the same side, uh, we, uh, we're talking about the silk route of the sea, and uh, there's been a lot of discussion about how that silk route, if you want to call it a silk route, because it's also a porcelain route, etc., but how that compares with the famous overland silk route, which in my view didn't have the same carrying capacity and um, moreover was more intermittent. One of the things I try to show in the book is how, although there were ups and downs, for instance, in the uh, 6th century, possibly as a result of the bubonic plague which spread throughout the Byzantine Empire, much of the Mediterranean and um, the Middle East, um, there was obviously something of a downturn. But by and large, across the Indian Ocean, over the centuries, the traffic remained very much alive. It, you know, the, the, the quantities, qualities, the exact routes changed. Sometimes the Red Sea was the route out of the Middle East. Sometimes the Persian Gulf was the route out of the Middle East. But that is a sort of continuous history of connections and these connections are not just um, they're not just commercial connections in the sense of people carrying goods. We're also looking at the transmission of ideas 
Uh, and that's something which I do try to address so that if we're talking about, um, for instance, religious ideas, that's actually the easiest part to get hold of, I think. Uh, the spread of Buddhism uh, across eastwards uh, from India and Sri Lanka eastwards. Uh, later on in the 15th century, following the foundation of Malacca, the spread of Islam eastwards. Um, I mean, you know, these are really very, very important uh, aspects of maritime history that, that shouldn't get forgotten, and particularly in the Brodelian tradition, do tend to get forget forgotten. Brodel wasn't very interested in the religious dimension um, of the history of the Mediterranean or anywhere else. With efforts ex as expansive as this, we often have an important question to consider as to what we should include, and more importantly, what we should exclude as historians, lest we get carried away by fascinating segues. How do you approach this challenging issue of melding together so many different narratives and discarding what might perhaps be a distraction from the, the message you're trying to send across in this book? Yeah, I, uh, I think um, probably my flippant answer would be uh, as a result of ignorance, because I'm sure there are all sorts of issues. I've mentioned, for instance, the fact I feel I should have said more about the Indian subcontinent in the sort of medieval period or whatever. Um, I didn't know much about it, so I <laughs> didn't say much about it. Uh, but um, no, that's obviously um, uh, a problem that does arise, that people, reviewers, will come along and say, oh, my goodness, you know, doesn't um, this person know about X, Y, and Z, which is really absolutely fundamental. Um, what I say that I'm trying to do in my preface is I say I'm not, trying to write a complete history, that's impossible. I mean, one could, I suppose, if one aimed at 12 volumes, aim at something with a sort of completeness. Um, what I'm trying to write, I say, is a rounded history. And I'm by rounded, of course, that's an allusion also to the globe, the round globe. So that idea of the connections around the globe, how they're made, uh, how people try to make new connections, like, for instance, trying to find the Northwest Passage over the top of Canada to reach China that way, or the Northeast Passage over Russia to reach China that way. But this idea of, of global connections, trying to trace those. Um, and then it is a question to some extent of, as I think with any historian, the sort of a combination of instinct, following one's nose, little bits of knowledge that you pick up, you know, how come I have a little bit about the arrival of population of basically Malay origin in um, Madagascar? Well, uh, the man I mentioned earlier, Philippe Beaujard, in his massive study of the ancient and medieval Indian Ocean, he's actually a great expert on Madagascar, so you begin to pick up from his work, well, this is something one really should talk about. And in any case, it is absolutely fascinating, the idea that these, these uh, people of Malay origin, they weren't just going eastwards, they were also traveling right across the open spaces of the Indian Ocean into this sort of, it's Madagascar's like a sort of separate continent on its own, mini continent on its own. Um, and they've left an enormous amount of their DNA and they left their language and so on. There. So 
so just following leads um i suppose it's probably a bit like being a a dog in a park really you sort of pick up a scent and you you run with it for a while and sometimes it peters out um what i found interestingly comparing these two uh, books the one about the oceans and the early one about the mediterranean the only one about the Mediterranean, I found it was quite easy to cut the text because in both cases I wrote more than I had actually um, been asked to write by the publisher that was in the contract. And so I felt with the Mediterranean book, well, I must do that. And there were indeed, it seemed to me, those, yes, those red herrings, all those going off at a tangent here and there. I think writing the second book for a similar sort of audience, I was that much more disciplined. I think I... And I found it much more difficult to cut. I thought I knew that it was far longer than Penguin Books expected. I also knew that my editor is very tolerant of long books, but um, but I had to be prepared to cut it back. So I went through uh, the word I use is shaving the text. You really, it's not a question of cutting out whole sections by and large. It's a question of going through each sentence and looking for superfluous words, tightening up the language, that's cutting out repetitions, all sorts of things like that. Um, and I found it that there wasn't that much I wanted to cut uh, because um, I think I was, I, I was sort of targeting what I was trying to say much more effectively, I hope, anyway. Well, you, you said you've cut out quite a bit, but nonetheless, it's, it's still a very comprehensive volume that has covered, I think, very many people. And of course, as a human history of the oceans, characters are a very important part of your story. Can you tell us a bit more about some of these characters, fishermen, traders, um, colonists, pirates, Vikings, who were they and how did they interact with each other? Yes. Um, no, I mean, one of the um, ways one has to put this sort of book together is, is certainly to pick up some of those individual stories. And we're lucky sometimes with that we actually have uh, descriptions uh, that sometimes they've written themselves, uh, you know, memoirs of their travels. So uh, the sort of people who come to mind, I, mean, I mentioned a moment ago the, uh, the way in which movement across the seas carried with it these sort of religious connections, these religious influences. And um, I, I mean, I've always been interested in history of Japan. And one of the great pleasures of writing uh, one of the Japan chapters was bringing in the career of a ninth century monk called Enin, who went from Japan to China, um, trying to make contact with, uh, with fellow Buddhists, trying to gain access to texts and so on hoping to spend time in a Buddhist monastery at a time when, in fact, the Chinese emperor, who was a Taoist, a member of a rival uh, religious cult, if you like, um, was persecuting the Buddhists quite fiercely. And this man, Inin, it's an extraordinary story because he managed to get the protection of a, a Korean gangster, I would say, um, who uh, Chang Pogo, who... Um, who they never met, um, but uh, Chang Pogo made sure that he was sort of looked after, he was safe on some of Chang Pogo's lands and so on. Um, and eventually, you, know, you, well, you have descriptions of these very difficult voyages and so on. Uh, so it's not just about the man's career, it's also full of information, the, his diary is also full of information. 
about um, ab- about traveling across the sea at a time when the Japanese were not quite as good at building ships as they are nowadays. It was quite a, a dangerous experience going from Japan to China, certainly on a Japanese ship. Um, if, you, if you had a choice, you would take a Korean ship as it happened. Um, so we've got cases like that. And then, I don't know, the other end of the world, um, uh, just thinking about the same sort of period of time, uh, we've, of course, got uh, the Norsemen. I won't call them Vikings because Vikings conjures up an image of people, so bloodthirsty people who've probably uh, been consuming some uh, some hallucinatory drugs and so on who are going into battle and slashing away at their enemies. Um, the Norse men and women who settled first in the Faroes, then in Iceland, and then in Greenland, and from Greenland also reached North America. We know they were in Newfoundland because we have archaeological evidence of their presence at a site in northern Newfoundland. Um, And so the story of these people, Eric the Red and others, um, who, uh, Leif Erikson, who managed to make these extraordinary journeys, who created Uh, in the case of Eric and his son Leif, who created these settlements in such a remote place as Greenland, which is not something ephemeral. What one has to recognize is that Greenland was inhabited by Norse people from before 1000 to some date in the 15th century. We don't really know when. Uh, It could be quite late in the 15th century. I suspect probably not. Um, We don't know why they left. We don't know whether they just died out or whether they emigrated, perhaps even across to Canada uh, and then disappeared into the um, native population there. Um, Their visits to America are another story. They they didn't stay in Newfoundland, but they continued to pop across and pick up wood. Uh, There's not much natural wood in Greenland, but in Labrador, a great deal. So um, they were building their houses and their ships and so on very often out of American wood. Um, so um, you know, here we have groups of people um, still maintaining contact with Europe up to certainly the middle of the 14th century, um, who are also living on the edge of unsuspected continents. Uh, it's an extraordinary story. Uh, so, I mean, those are just two examples, but obviously I could also find lots of examples from much more recent times, you know, ship owners in the 19th, 20th century, all that sort of thing, with these extraordinary careers that some of them had, setting up shipping routes through uh, from Liverpool or wherever it was uh, and across the world. People building the Panama Canal, again, um, there's marvellous material about the lives, not merely of those who invested in it and and the engineers who constructed it, but also the labour force, uh, the way that the um, the black labour force, although technically they were in what was called the gold category, i.e. Um, uh, Americans, well, if they were United States citizens, they'd be in so-called gold category, were actually, of course, not treated nearly as well as the white workers, all sorts of issues of that sort that come out. Well, one theme that 
your book touches on very well is this idea of globalization and how it had its roots in a time much earlier than, than we think. We think of globalization today as a very recent and modern phenomenon, but historians like Christopher Bailey have shown us that this contemporary age of globalization you know, isn't anything new. To what extent do you think your book challenges this, this perception of globalization as a new phenomenon? Well, certainly um, this idea of um, sort of pushing back the concept of globalization much earlier is something that's been on my mind for a long time. The, the first thing, the sort of warning that one has to make to anybody who engages in this discussion is uh, what do we actually, well, we all mean something slightly different by it. Um, and I was quite taken with a definition provided by a, an economic historian from Oxford, Kevin O'Rourke, who was thinking about the way in which, I mean, let's take as an example, people producing ceramics in China, porcelain in China for the European market. So how their activities um, out there, you know, thousands and thousands of miles away affect prices much much further afield, um, the way in which, um, and this would apply also to other, to um, to non-industrial products, wheat, things like that, rye, which was taken out of the Baltic in large quantities in uh, the early modern period. Um, so the idea of sort of mutual influences, which affect the whole sort of structure of the economy, if you like, in places which are physically very separate. Um, and I, I think that works as a sort of day-to-day -day definition of what one's talking about. But sometimes the term is used, and I think I sometimes am also using it in this sense, uh, in a rather looser sense, to talk about global connections which are not simply casual. I mean, um, there was a book published last year by a professor of Chinese history at Yale, Valerie Hansen, which tried to argue that globalization began around the year 1000. And uh, when pressed to bring America into this sort of framework, she cited these Norsemen in uh, Newfoundland and even brought them right down to the Gulf of Mexico to the Maya uh, centers, Maya sacrificial centers. And uh, I mean, it, it's based on the most bizarre and exaggerated speculation. It's, it's nonsense. And in any case, as the reviewers pointed out, um, it's not as if a regular connection is established. It's not as if, to come back to the O'Rourke type of definition, what's happening in Scandinavia is somehow interacting economically with what's happening in, uh, in the Maya empire in, in Yucatan in Central America. So um, um, one has to be careful about some of that. But what I'm also trying to do is to think of connections across space, connections between, if you like, civilizations, which we can trace back as far as 2500 BC, the connections between the Sumerians in what's now Iraq and the Indus Valley civilization in what is now Pakistan and Northwest India, being affected by sea, involving exchanges of goods, involving migration of people, involving the creation of a midway commercial center in Bahrain. Um, there are all sorts of interesting issues there about how different worlds, physically 
I suppose, not that far apart, but they are making contact with one another through maritime connections. So that, to me, is a sort of pre-globalization, perhaps pre-proto, whatever term one wants to, to use. I'm probably being a bit facile in thinking in those terms, but it's for me, it's a very important starting point in understanding the opening up of the oceans. And to that effect, your book sets out, I think, to correct many ill-founded misapprehensions many of us hold about the oceans and its peoples, not just about globalization that we've discussed, um, but also, for instance, the idea that Japan was isolationist. What do you think is the single biggest misconception that we have about the oceans that you would encourage us to rethink and seriously reconsider? Um, I, that is a very good question. I, um, I think some, I think possibly the big misconceptions do, uh, concern, um, the waters of China and Japan. Uh, there is this issue about the, uh, receptivity of Japan to European culture in particular in the early modern period. Now we know that, in the case of Japan, uh, by the mid-17th century, they chased out Portuguese merchants and missionaries who were seen as a major problem, a political problem as much as anything else. Um, and they allowed the Dutch to establish themselves on this artificial island joined to Nagasaki, the island of Dishima, uh, where they remained for the next um, couple of centuries, effectively, until the arrival of the um, European. The Americans like to claim that they were the ones who broke through, but I think I show in the book that it's a bit more complicated than that. Uh, there were Russians, there were English, there were um, all sorts of others at work in, in doing so. Um, but again, if we're talking about that part of the world, we also have to think about not just Japan's so-called isolation, uh, and certainly in the Middle Ages, much more open to contact with Korea and with China, but also the issue of China and the extent to which China cut itself off from the sea for long periods in the so-called Tang period, so let's say the ninth century. Um, and then in the Ming period, after the famous Ming voyages, beginning of the 15th century, when the Chinese emperor sent uh, ships, great fleets, as far as East Africa and the Red Sea. Uh, and it turns out to be a much more complicated picture than people have generally assumed. With underneath all these official prohibitions of maritime trade, China actually being open to foreign merchants, periods of time, notably 11th, 12th century, um, 13th, 14th century, early 14th centuries, when um, China Chinese rulers were actually encouraging their own citizens to go out and trade by sea. And this whole question, it's a fascinating question of how the rulers of China, Japan, Korea, and so on, how they would try to sort of reset commercial relationships, moving away from um, from from trade as we would normally understand it, to a system of exchange built around notional tributes. And this, in the case of China, this was partly built up around Confucian ideas or sort of hierarchical ideas 
from the thinking of Confucius. But the reality was quite different. And, um, and so you have this sort of political facade underneath which a lot of commercial business continued to be carried on. Indeed, one of the major medieval Chinese trading centers, Shanzhou, came into existence precisely in a period when Chinese were not really supposed to be trading across the sea. But um, so it was a sort of an unofficial trading center, which pretty soon was recognized as a major center of trade. Well, we've had the chance to look at quite a few different stories from all around the world, all across the seas today. Um, and I'd like to talk just finally about the last few sections of your book titled um, Separately Oceans in Conversation and more recently Oceans Contained. Where do you think the history of the oceans will go from here? How do you think historians in future might write a history of the 20th and 20, 21st centuries to reference the oceans? Yeah, the to me, there's been a very significant change in the character of movement across the oceans. Um, and I deal with this in the book by looking at uh, two phenomena. One is the disappearance of something which really became a major um, uh, sort of economic asset, if you like, during the late 19th, 20th, early 20th centuries, the passenger traffic across the oceans uh, with the coming of the steamship, uh, increasingly easy contact by sea between, let's say, Southampton and New York or or Southampton and Hong Kong or whatever it might be. Um, and the substitution in the second half of the 20th century by air travel, which is actually part of the history of the oceans when you think about it. Um, but it, it's not just that. What we see is the transformation of, of those ocean-going liners have now become cruise liners. Um, there's, there are very few opportunities. If you want to travel to New York old style by sea, I think you know, there may be one or two crossings a year, uh, though at the moment there won't be any. But um, So um, our way of getting across the sea has changed very significantly, but what has developed at the same time is this extraordinarily uh, active tourist traffic consisting of basically circular journeys. Well, I, I, I tell a lie because, of course, you might start from a town near one airport and then your ship might end up at a town near another airport. But ultimately, you are going in a circle because eventually you're going to go back home to wherever in Wyoming or Nebraska or whatever you live, having been on your cruise around, let's say, the Caribbean. And that the Caribbean is where it all started, really, the cruise industry as we know it nowadays. So that's one fundamental transformation that's taken place in the relationship between ordinary human beings and the sea. The other fundamental transformation concerns the way in which goods are transported across the sea. Uh, and um, what, what we actually see from beginning in the second half of the 20th century again, is the disappearance of the port city as we used to know it, as a place of mixed ethnicities, um, a place with this enormous labour force working, uh, drawing its income from 
ship-related activities, longshoremen and all these people uh, loading goods on boats, taking goods off boats, servicing the ships and so on. But obviously the servicing still takes place, but often away from these ports. And instead we have these great container centres, which is why I called that chapter The Oceans in a Box. Um, we have these container centres and Think about the containers, you know, even with Britain leaving the EU and a lot more checking on goods as they pass between Britain and France. Nonetheless, basically, let's take an example somewhere in in America, Pittsburgh, for the sake of argument. I'm doing somewhere in the hinterland of America and you want to send goods to Warsaw somewhere in the hinterland of Europe. So you put them in the container, you do your paperwork, um, the container is sealed up. Off it goes, it'll pass through probably Port of New York or Boston, I don't know, somewhere, and it'll arrive almost certainly in Rotterdam or Hamburg and then be passed. And this is all a mecha- basically a mechanical operation apart from filling up the forms. You know, it's put on a train, it's taken off the train by a machine, loaded into the boat, and it's not, it doesn't have to be fitted in by these expert um, uh, packers that you had in the old days, it's slotted into place uh, on a ship that can carry thousands and thousands of containers. I mean, the size of these ships, particularly the largest ones being built in China, is absolutely astonishing. Uh, and when the goods arrive in Europe again, once they've been just sort of checked on paper, unlikely that the, uh, the container will be opened and checked, on it passes to, to Warsaw by rail or road or whatever. So um, that's a very different sort of relationship to the relationship in the days of the great port cities. And you think of in the United Kingdom, for instance, you know, what are our container ports? We have Felixstowe, Felixstowe, which is a sort of, well, historically just a sort of village um, um, near Ipswich, so not terribly far from London. But a nowhere place, really, you know, and that is replicated in many parts of the world. It's true that there are, you know, other examples. Obviously, Hong Kong is one of the great examples of a city which still has an absolutely phenomenal uh, amount of container traffic. But again, you know, it's not the historic port of Hong Kong. These are areas set aside now, which are, if you like, massive machines absolutely enormous machines handling these goods, passing them through. So to me, that involves such a major change in the way that human beings relate to the sea. If you take those two things together, um, the leisure dimension, the cruise liner, and the um, the container dimension, um, that isn't the oceanic space of the of, of, of the early 20th century or 19th century, let alone earlier centuries. You're right. It's absolutely astonishing how far we've come um, in terms of technological and, and social progress with regards to the human history of the oceans. And it's wonderful to see someone who's been able to take a subject that he's so clearly passionate about and be able to talk, at it, talk about it at such great length. I think an hour of our conversation would do no justice to the amount of research effort you've poured into this volume. So I'd encourage listeners to pick up a copy of this book. And in that vein, I'd like to invite you, David, to take a step back from your position as an author um, and advise us as readers, how do you think 
we should approach this volume? Yes. Uh, now, I try to write the book uh, in a way uh, which is also true of the Mediterranean book. So that was my sort of model in a way. I try to write both books in a way that um, you could either start on page one and, you know, push on if you had the energy and so on, all the way to page a thousand. Um, just keep going. Um, and you'll. You know, I hope that people will then see that there is a rational organization to the book uh, falling into two halves um, around 1500, which is halfway through the book. Um, but the other way, which, again, it's very much devised with people to read in this way, and I suspect I would, you know, if I, if I were um, buying this book myself, and if I weren't myself, if you see what I mean, um, I would probably jump around and... You know, I would say, oh, how interesting. You know, I'd like to know more about the early history of Singapore or something. So I would delve into those chapters and then I might see something about, I don't know, Madeira uh, and the importance of all these Atlantic islands. Think, oh, that's interesting. You know, I've been there. I'd like to read about that. So I don't mind if people, it's written in a way where people can jump around, read the bits that interest them, go back and forth, or at the same time, um, read the whole book in not a single sitting. I think you, you know, you'd be sleepless for quite a long time if you tried that. Um, and uh, I think that's very important in in writing history books, which are aimed at a wider public. While at the same time, also, uh, I'm trying to say something to fellow academics. I mean, the book is heavily footnoted, uh, and you know, it quotes a lot of original sources and so on. So uh, inevitably, they probably are going to, you know, I, I showed it to an expert on Japan. Um, he did, He never got back to me before the book was published. So I was a little bit nervous what he would say about the chapters, but, you know, he was happy with them. Um, but, you know, what is he going to read the rest of the book? Well, I don't know. I hope so. But I would quite understand, obviously, if he concentrated on the bits that are close to his professional interests. I think the selling point of the book is very much that that there's something in it for everyone, and you don't even have to be interested in history to to find something that you have a personal connection to at the very least. Well, thank you, thank you very much. And if we could just end off the interview on a question that I pose to every guest who comes onto the podcast: if you could interview someone for their new book in history, who would that be? Now, if we're talking about um, recent books, then. I'd like to sit down. I mean, I do know him, but um, but I haven't seen him for years. A book which I chose in Times Literary Supplement as one of my books of the year uh, by Fernando Cervantes from uh, University of Bristol, uh, Conquistadores, where he writes about Columbus, Cortes and Pizarro and um, tries to um, give a... Um, a sort of nuanced view, if you like, of the nature of this of this conquest, and you know, so much has been written about the violence of the Spaniards, which is undoubtedly the case, and so much about the violence of Aztecs and Incas and so on, um, human sacrifice, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, um, that actually to have a professional historian weigh these things up in a dispassionate, sort of unemotional way, I think is very helpful indeed. Um, I, I think that is a very um, uh, a very fine piece of 
of work and it'd be nice to be able uh, once the pandemic is over to sort of sit with him and and discuss that well that's great i i've very much enjoyed our conversation today david um it's been a truly enlightening one and i think everyone has taken away at least something from this conversation so i'd like to thank you for being such a gracious guest today no well thank you very much it's very kind of you to uh, invite me yep very good thank you well, on that note, thank you for your time and thank you for listening to this episode of New Books in History.